Welcome to Pocket Economics, a guide to changing lives, our podcast about the ideas which are shaping the EBRD regions and beyond. I'm Jonathan Charles, and today we're discussing economic resilience, the ability of markets and institutions to resist global shocks. The word resilience comes from a Latin verb, which means to rebound or to recoil or present some sort of elasticity. So what does resilience mean for a market economy? How can it become truly resilient to shocks and global challenges? Our guests today are Mattia Romani, EBRD's Managing Director for Economics, Policy and Governance, and Boyan Markovic, Deputy Director for Economics, Policy and Governance. Mattia, how do we define the term economic resilience and why is that quality so important for a well-functioning market economy? Uh, well, Jonathan, the concept of resilience is actually at the heart of our transition mandate now. As, as we all know, the transition mandate of the EBRD has been updated. Uh, last year to reflect the challenges of a changing world. And one of those challenges is indeed uh, the volatility that we observe in markets and the impact this volatility has on people. So the definition is based on that. And in the transition concept review, we say that the resilient market economy supports growth while avoiding excessive volatility and lasting economic reversals. So it's about avoiding volatility, but also uh, creating some safety uh, for people from economic shocks. And this is very much at the heart of the concept. So really it's about reducing vulnerabilities. It's about creating diversity so that if one sector of the economy doesn't perform well, other sectors uh, will kick in. Um, so it's both about creating better markets, but also policies around those markets that enable them to work uh, in the manner uh, that I described. So basically, it's hard to be a healthy economy if you're not a resilient economy. Exactly. And we saw that very clearly during the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, most recently. That was not a healthy economy. And the impact of a financial shock, which uh, should have been uh, limited and, uh, if you want, uh, should have been constrained by policies, was not. And trickles throughout the uh, real economy first, and then from one country to the other, creating one of the largest global shocks the uh, economy has ever seen since we started measuring it. Boyan, we hear there then, okay, resilience is very important, but how do you go about measuring resilience and, and working out whether an economy is truly resilient? Uh, there, there are many ways to measure the resilience, as there are many shocks that can hit economy. Mattia mentioned financial shocks that can be oil price shocks or food price shocks. When it comes to the financial shocks in the financial system, there are many different indicators, both quantitative, qualitative assessments and so on. But we can bottle them up maybe in two uh, major groups. One is a set of indicators that measures soundness of the financial sector, and in particular banking sector. So things such as profitability of banks, such as loan to deposit ratio, level of non-performing loans, or indeed the level of dollarization or euroization in an economy. There are also uh, indicators that should measure availability of diverse sources of funding. So not only bank funding, but also private equity or equity funding, something that in EBRD we are focusing in particular. And when it comes to like of sort of looking to which extent you like these indicators raise alarm bells, it's not one indicator that can, you know, cause a source of alarm. It's really a particular combination, uh, amber lights appearing left, right and center that can actually uh, uh, give us an idea of to which extent an economy is resilient, to which extent you like we might have some false alarms or something. 
Matia, in terms of those amber lights that Boyan was just mentioning there, I mean, has the nature of the economic challenge, economic challenges, internal and external, have they changed over the past decade? I think they have massively. Um, I think the complexity and the interdependencies have deepened so much that uh, we now face crises which are really complex to understand and to even map. Let me give you an example. Um, what happened in 2010-11 in North Africa. So there, an environmental issue, uh, i.e. a bad season crop due to basically, potentially, the consequences of climate change, one could claim, has caused the prices of basic goods to go up in North Africa. That triggered a political crisis in Tunisia first, many other North African countries. The Arab Spring uh, came out of that, and that had a number of consequences for the economies of these countries, and then, of course, for migration, refugees to Western Europe, and a number of other uh, uh, sort of crises and issues were then triggered by this. So you see how the complexities uh, mean that uh, one single uh, element of uh, disruption can create an enormous amount of economic and political uh, sort of crisis around the world. So this is very much the economic uh, version of the famous uh, butterfly uh, uh, sort of uh, effect. Uh, well, we heard some examples there, Boyan and Mattia was just talking about. When you look through the resilience lens at the EBRD region, so how are they facing how are they faring? As other regions all over the world, right? I mean, and some parts of our uh, region better, some parts of our region worse. I mean, we have faced quite a lot of shocks recently over the past uh, over the past seven eight years, but even longer, right? I mean, Greek financial crisis, uh, big Lehman Brothers financial crisis, uh, uh, and even fifteen years ago, some of our countries went through a large banking sector crisis. Turkey, for example. Um, and you know, crisis will keep coming, right? I mean, so uh, if I'm to do some sort of generic overview, we have usual suspects which uh, did rather well, Baltic countries, Poland, uh, countries that when big Lehman Brothers financial crisis hit, uh, Poland was the only European country or one of the two or three European countries that didn't experience any recession. Uh, and Baltic countries experienced quite sharp recession, but rebounds very quickly, right? Uh, but there are some sort of surprising uh, uh, countries that showed resilience. Turkey, uh, for example, uh, uh, despite all of the domestic uncertainties, uh, 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 global uncertainties and so on, banking sector in Turkey remained quite stable over the past several years. And one would argue that uh, a big reason for that is that following a big crisis 15 years ago, there was a big cleanup of the sector. So we can only hope that in the future, uh, uh, the regulators and everything uh, uh, happening now in Turkey uh, will, will not impede uh, the soundness of the financial sector in Turkey. You're listening to Pocket Economics, the EBRD podcast on how economic ideas can help to change people's lives. And of course, we'd love to hear what you think. Contact us at EBRD on Twitter and on Facebook with the hashtag Pocket Economics. I'm Jonathan Charles. Today we're discussing economic resilience with our guests, Matija Romani and Boyan Markovic. Uh, uh, Matija, what do you think are the main problems now that the countries and our regions are facing? Well, in a way, I can go back to the butterfly effect uh, that I was talking about uh, earlier. Um, because the issue is not really the one event that triggers the crisis. The issue is, are the mechanisms in place to withstand uh, those crises from spreading uh, too quickly? And in our experience, one key element 
that needs to be in place is a resilient banking sector, a banking sector which is well capitalized, a banking sector that is majority privately owned. We have evidence that that increases the resilience, that is profitable, liquid, um, that uh, uh, is not exposed to significant maturity, uh, with adequate and transparent, uh, and transparent uh, uh, governance structures, risk management practices, which are really best in class, effective supervisory and regulatory frameworks. These are all characteristics that make a banking sector uh, really resilient. And why is that important? Because the banking sector is an intermediary to pretty much everything that happens in the economy. Therefore, can really um, serve as a shock absorber. And the financial crisis again showed us how not to do things in a way, how an undercapitalized, overstretched, too uh, risk-prone banking sector does not serve as an amortizer, cannot have that role of increasing resilience. So one area that we're working a lot in our countries of operations on is indeed to create banking sectors that have the characteristics that I laid out. Just a few minutes ago, Boyan, you mentioned Turkey as an example of resilience, uh, and we've heard some resilience characteristics from Matia. When we look at Turkey, do you think those, those sort of things played a part in Turkey's, as you put it, surprising resilience? Uh, yes. Yes, they did, right? I mean, uh, but but the, the another interesting thing for Turkey is that you know, like we seem to go through the cycles. You know, like countries that face the banking crisis do the cleanup; countries they don't may not do the cleanup. So you know, like uh, surprisingly or paradoxically, but those countries that went through a, a crisis seem to be a bit more resilient in the future than those crises that didn't have uh, uh, those countries that didn't have crisis for a while. Uh, now that's uh, th that's where the role of uh, us and other international financial institutions as well may be, and that's the for forewarn countries or make sure that countries don't forget that reform is uh, is necessary uh, to keep the country resilient. So you like to avoid a sort of reform fatigue which renders countries less resilient. Yeah, and if I can add to that, uh, I think one important part of the story is, and we must talk about it uh, when we talk about resilience in our country's operations, MPLs, the mm -hmm. non-performing mm -hmm. loans. It's on everybody's uh, uh, mind, it's on newspapers, in articles, on TV. Why is it so important? These are non-performing loans. These are exposures that banks have to corporates or to portfolio or portfolios of uh, mortgages that are simply unlikely to be returning full value uh, because either the corporates underneath are not performing very well or because the housing market is unlikely to provide the same values that these original mortgages were valued at. So why are these so important? Well, because they are a real problem for banks. They are a heavy burden that banks have to carry with them and put capital against to reassure themselves um, that they have sufficient liquidity and robustness to withhold the decreasing value of these assets they have on their books. And uh, we are uh, strongly engaged uh, across our countries of operation to resolve this issue. How do you resolve an issue like MPLs? Well, fundamentally you recognize the fact that the value of these assets is, is lower than it is registered on uh, the bank's books and therefore needs to be revalued. Um, some bits of it may be valuable, some uh, corporates in that portfolio may be restructured, some uh, uh, bits and pieces can be sold, but they need to be removed from the bank's uh, balance sheets as soon as possible to allow the banks to really operate again and to really start lending again and start uh, becoming that uh, element of resilience in the economy to which we want them to be. 
um, Boyan uh, and I work uh, closely on the Vienna Initiative together with colleagues from the World Bank, the IMF, the European Central Bank, the European Investment Bank, uh, uh, and others on uh, really supporting uh, a number of our countries of operations on resolving uh, these issues of MPLs with the best possible uh, knowledge experience that uh, so these institutions can pull together. Well, maybe just to add, right? So one practical experience from the Vienna Initiative that we see. I mean, throughout uh, throughout the past several decades in various countries, you know, resolution of big, large, non-performing loans cases. Uh, it, it took really 10 years you know, like to resolve them. And that's not the case only in our countries of operation emerging economies. It's the case in Japan, Scandinavian countries as well over the past uh, two or three decades. And we usually go through certain stages, right? I mean, the first stage that lasts two, three, four years is just raising the awareness, being aware that that's a problem. So you go to the regulators once MPLs start massing, and they will tell you, yes, there are those MPLs, but that's not really a problem. You know, like, I mean, they're fully provisioned. Of course, they are a problem because most of the managers in banks and corporates waste a, a great bulk of their time trying to uh, roll over those MPLs and don't do anything else but that. Right? So, and once awareness is raised, then we, in the MPL initiative, you know, like uh, uh, as, as it was shown, uh, uh, then it's up to us to kind of, okay, uh, let, let's try to think, you're like, well, how do we resolve them? What's the action plan? Uh, and it's not you know, like, I mean, there are some best best practices that we can apply country by country, but it's not one country, uh, uh, one size fits all, right? I mean, it, it really, you know, like uh, necessitates a good analysis and assessment what a particular country needs are. And then the final thing, the third stage is, okay, even if we want to uh, resolve them, we know what do we want to do. Uh, what we see is that there is a big shortage of skills or skillful people uh, on the ground to resolve them. Even some of our advanced countries, such as Slovenia, when they started to resolve, we noticed uh, uh, faced a big shortage of skills. So the training, capacity building, and so on is the next stage. And that's why it takes you know, like usually uh, seven, eight years. Uh, so the good news is that we started five, six years ago in Central and Southeastern Europe. So we are now seeing some good results of that because over the past uh, uh, year, non-performing loans are falling down in that region. But in other of our regions, Central Asia, SEMED, some of the Eastern European countries, we are, I have to say, only in this sort of first stage of raising awareness of the MPLs because they have risen uh, uh, recently. And we might actually be there trying to resolve NPLs for, for at least five more, six years more to come. So we've heard uh, there an example of why resilience, you know, has many factors. NPL is one factor in resilience. We'd be remiss, I think, in ending without really discussing another one, climate change adaptation. Surely that's going to be crucial for economies in future in terms of their resilience. No, absolutely. And I glad, I'm glad that you're asking that question because that is also an element that is becoming more and more prominent in creating really resilient economies. And perhaps two are the areas that um, I want to focus on, uh, which are areas where the EBRD is deeply engaged. One is food and the other one is energy. You may ask why food, uh, greatest majority of our countries of operations are not countries that uh, face famines or food shortages. Well, uh, food and supply chains uh, that bring food to your table are incredibly complex and very inefficient. 
the levels of waste, um, the levels of uh, missing links in these uh, uh, supply chains, the level of inefficiencies in the way in which energy is used in these supply chains. These are all um, sort of uh, components that imply that the food that gets to your table is more expensive, is delayed, is produced through inefficient processes. There's a real opportunity to increase uh, the efficiency of all these processes, and this will bring uh, more competition in the sector will lower the price and create more price stability in the food sector, which is one of the sectors with the highest levels of uh, price instability uh, we have. And ultimately, will create um, economies which are more uh, resilient and better able to deal with shocks, including shocks related to climate change. That's why at EBRD, we've really prioritized this area, which you can think as being counterintuitive in our countries of operation. But actually, in our countries, we can find so many opportunities to increase that efficiency. We've invested so far over 3.2 billion euros uh, in uh, agribusiness at EBRD, mostly around making the supply chains more efficient. And a similar argument really goes for, uh, for energy and increasing uh, uh, the resilience of the energy sector. Why? Because energy is a little bit like banking. It goes everywhere. It's an intermediary to any economic activity. So uh, EBRD has prioritized energy also in the context of creating more resilient uh, markets. This is about energy security, of course. It's about ensuring that the lights stay on. But it's also about creating the best, most efficient way of deploying this absolutely crucial input into the private sector. This is an input which is used by everybody that pr produces pretty much anything, goods and services. And increasing the ability of uh, delivering this energy in, a, in the cheapest possible way, in the most uh, efficient and direct way, really increases the ability of the private sector to perform well and therefore for the economy to be uh, resilient. So that's why these two elements are so important in today's economies. Very interesting discussion. I'd like to thank you both, Matteo Boyan. Thank you very much indeed. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. If you're interested in finding out more, you can visit ebrd.com, of course, to read more about the transition qualities including resilience, uh, why they're so important to the way that economies change and the way that we work in those economies. Meanwhile, share your thoughts with us at EBRD on Twitter and Facebook. Visit iTunes, SoundCloud and ebrd.com slash podcast to download previous episodes. And remember that reviewing and rating Pocket Economics helps others to find it. Until next time, from me, Jonathan Charles, goodbye.